Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Brian Cuban, who has a variety of skills and things that we would like to talk about in his bio. He is not just an attorney. He's not just a nonfiction author. He has written a fiction book called The Ambulance Chaser, which will be out in December, and I can't wait to read it. He has also been a speaker at nonprofit events, really doing his part in reducing stigma of mental health, substance use disorders, eating disorders, and he is frankly an inspiration. So welcome, Brian. appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. Thank you. So tell us a little bit for those people who don't know your story. I do, and it was it's riveting. So I would love to hear why do you think we asked you to be on this show, right? Why are we talking today? What is it that stigma reduction we can do? Yeah. Well, I'm a person in long-term recovery. I have uh, over 14 and a half years of recovery. Uh, abstinence is my path from uh, two eating disorders, exercise and traditional bulimia, cocaine addiction and uh, alcohol use disorder, quote unquote, alcoholism. Uh, and uh that uh, it's been a it's been an interesting journey. I'm a lawyer, but I do not practice anymore. I am non-practicing. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA. Went to Penn State undergrad. Went to Pitt Law. Lived in Dallas since 1986, and uh, have had some serious ups and downs related to addiction. Lost my career as a lawyer. Two trips to a psychiatric hospital. The first after a near suicide attempt in uh, 2005. Jail was arrested three failed marriages, one more, I get a free set of steak knives, and then uh, in <laughs> battling severe depression along the way. And so it's been a roller coaster journey, but uh, I am still standing above ground and that is the only prerequisite to recovery. I love that, that you are standing. I w my next question was gonna be, did you have a serious bottom or did you come to enlightenment you know, without a lot of consequences. But your introduction just then told me what I needed to know. You had some serious, what they would have called in 12-step vernacular, jackpots, right? Lost marriages. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, the uh, in 2005, I was so lost and so devoid of hope that I decided in a very quick manner, and that's how fast they can come on, the thoughts, that I would be doing my family a favor by ending my life by suicide. And uh, it was very close. I, I emailed, I sent a, dis a disturbing email to a very good friend who contacted my brothers. And uh, my younger brother, Jeff, came into my house. And uh, I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was cocaine everywhere. There was Xanax. And Mark, my older brother, Mark, flew in from L.A. And uh, they took me on my first of two trips to a psychiatric hospital, kicking and screaming. But that wasn't even the end of it. Uh, I wasn't ready for recovery, believe it or not. That was not my quote unquote rock bottom, although I hate that term. I, uh, I, I prefer recovery tipping point. 
in 2007 Easter weekend, my now wife, yes, she stood by me, came home from a trip to find uh, me passed out in bed after a two-day blackout. She had gone away to visit her family and knew nothing about my drug issues. We had just begin- we had only been dating about a year, and she had just moved in with me. And uh, that was my second trip back to the psychiatric hospital. And that was the moment when I realized there wouldn't be a third trip. I'd be dead, among a couple other realizations I had, epiphanies, paradigm changes, and that standing in that parking lot for the second time. And that is when I began my journey forward into recovery, Easter weekend, 2007. I like the Easter weekend reference, frankly, you know, just sort of like renewal, resurrection, change, all of those things. It seems well, fitting. Uh, seems well, fitting. And also interestingly, also interestingly, my uh, recovery date is also my late father's birthday. So it mm. uh, has a couple different meanings to me. Yeah, I'll bet. So you, you had a rocky journey. And one of the disorders that you have talked about in your struggle was body dysmorphic disorder. Can you describe number one, what that feels like to live with that? And number two, why you think it's important that we talk about this? Sure, in layman's terms, body dysmorphic disorder is when someone takes a small or even non-existent perceived defect in their body, whether it's a blemish on their face or you know, many other things, it can, uh, be many other things and exaggerates that reflection, perceived reflection to the point where it affects their ability to function quote unquote normally in life. They don't leave the house. It has a high correlation to suicide. It has a high correlation to eating disorders. It has a high correlation to steroid abuse, anabolic steroid abuse. It can manifest itself in many different ways. It affects about 2% of the population, men and women equally. It has kind of a stereotype as a woman's disorder and, uh, and it was something that I've struggled with much of my life. And for me, it was related to a lot of childhood bullying and trauma and being a heavy kid and being fat shamed and actually even being physically assaulted over my weight. Every time I looked in the mirror, starting when I was about, or a car window or a classroom window or a mall store window, all I would see is this huge stomach and this unlovable monster uh, unworthy of any love, who would never get married, who would never have a girlfriend, not worthy of anything. I saw this kind of thing that I hated and it to manifest itself in many different uh, self-destructive behaviors, starting with uh, restrictive behavior and, and eating disorder, then transitioning into binging and purging as a freshman at Penn State. Also added exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise, for the primary purpose of offsetting calories and then alcohol and then cocaine, boom, 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 boom. Cycling through all destructive behaviors, trying to change this reflection that never changed. That is how I describe body dysmorphic disorder as it applied to me. So the goal is to change the actual thing that's bothering you about yourself as opposed to self-acceptance, right? And recovery would be acceptance. Is that true? Uh, reco no, uh, recovery can lead to acceptance. Uh, I struggle with body image issues in my adulthood. I get asked what my biggest recovery challenge is, and it's my, today in my 60s, it's my relationship with exercise and food, the exercise bulimia. So I mean, I think recovery is a, uh, especially 
you know, recovery from the standpoint of eating disorders and drugs and alcohol is certainly for me was a prerequisite to self-acceptance. But self-acceptance is a journey even in my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For me, too. I can honestly yeah, say Yeah, I mean, that. we have yeah. to remember that there is a difference between a disorder and normative discontent. Uh, in the industrialized world, right, most people go, go through life at one point or another and they get up and they look in the mirror and say, wow, that sucks. Uh, you know, my, I feel my pants feel a little tighter. I'm losing my hair. Uh, I just don't feel like I can go out and face the world. But that passes. In normative discontent, that passes. We get on with our lives. That's different from body dysmorphic disorder where you don't leave the house. You contemplate suicide. You go through these routines, what I call tics, that take up half your day, whether it's having to try on every pair of pants before I leave the house, whether it's spending an hour in the shower examining every inch of my body. So that is not normative discontent. That is not normal behavior as we define it in society. It sounds like a miserable existence. It does in the throes it's, of active symptomatic. It is periods. a miserable existence, but it's also survival existence. I didn't know any different, whether it was binging and purging as an 18 year old at Penn State before anyone was talking about eating disorders, whether it was uh, body dysmorphic disorder in my 40s when people really weren't talking about body dysmorphic disorder. The diagnosis was an actual journey with my therapist who really didn't understand it. When I, uh, when I started talking about finally all of these behaviors that I was engaging in. And it really all revolved back to a lot of childhood trauma. Now, there's a, there's a difference between cause and correlation. So not everyone who goes through some of the things I did, whether it's bullying or fat shaming, will develop these things. That's why it's correlation, right? But uh, for me, this is the journey led down that path. Yeah, I can see why. I can when you describe that. Tell me, and then you went into the nurturing field of the practice of law. Tell me, and we know that lawyers have an even higher rate of substance use and other sort of behaviors that are used to medicate pain. Sure. Tell me how that worked for you. It didn't work very well, but we have to start with the premise that I never wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a police officer when I was at Penn State. That would have worked out well with my history. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the baby laxative for the cocaine. But uh, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyers. I had no concept of what it, being a lawyer. I didn't want to emulate Atticus Finch or be Clarence Darrow. Uh, that law school and my journey towards path towards being a lawyer started when I heard a couple guys talking about taking the LSATs and going to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, Penn State, a lot of people from, are from Pittsburgh. And it occurred to me that law school was three years and I can stay in school three more years and I can binge and purge, I can drink, I can run excessive distances, and I could engage in the exact same behaviors that allowed me to survive moment to moment at Penn State, second to second, where I was already a quote unquote alcoholic, uh, you know, running and drink and binging and purging, putting a inordinate amount of stress on my body doing all those things. And that's all I was interested in was survival because these behaviors had become survival mechanisms and all I knew to get through the day. And so that's why I went to law school. 
That's it. Yeah, and so I went for all the wrong reasons. And uh, now I talk to law students all the time who reach out to me, and there are, it's not, it's, uh, and I talk to law students who are there and don't want to be there. I won't say that's the norm, but I do talk to them and I do hear from them. Now, it may not be my reasons, but it's uh, parental pressure or the pressuring themselves. They feel they have to. Everyone in the family is a lawyer or this or that. And so that, that does happen. And so I walked through the doors of Pitt Law as someone who didn't want to be there and uh, with several uh, mental health issues going on at a time when people weren't talking about mental health on any level in the uh, early, you know, this was 1983. And uh, so, as you might imagine, I isolated. I didn't do well in law school. I repeated cycles. I was going to class drunk. I uh, did my first year moot court drunk and I graduated near the bottom of my class. And so I did, I did make it through, but uh, I made it through with the exact same issues, if not worse, because of law school has a lot of stress to it. Then, uh, as when I walked through the doors and I kicked the can right into the practice of law because I wasn't seeking any help. I didn't know help was possible. No one was reaching out to me. Again, this was a different time. Uh, we still have stigma today, but there was a lot more stigma in the mid eighties. And so I kicked the can right into the practice of law and I failed the bar exam uh, twice, uh, or actually two and a half times because of the way we do it in Texas and all because of drug and alcohol issues. And then we had the failed marriages, the arrest for DWI. I finally lost all my clients and I was literally, uh, and I acknowledge my privilege here, I was literally being supported by my brother Mark uh, because I had no more clients and I was a mess. And I do have privilege and I acknowledge that. And, uh, but it was what it was, right? I had last name privilege because of my brother uh, and people who don't know he owns the Mavs and Shark Tank and, uh, I had the privilege of having somebody who loved me dearly, didn't want to see me living under a bridge, skin color privilege, uh, all kinds of different things that allowed me, that helped me, uh, you know, to one extent or another, not end up where a lot of other people do. Yeah, yeah. Was there, was it difficult being the brother of somebody who's pretty high profile? and pretty damn successful in this world? Did that have its own shaming effect for you? Uh, well, we have to start with the premise and the basic baseline that I was struggling with all these issues before my brother became internationally famous. So it didn't okay. cause any of these things. Of but, course. Uh, but I was also someone who, again, was struggling with his self-image looked in the mirror and saw, saw just this unlovable monster. I had no identity of my own. So from that standpoint, when Mark became, you know, internationally famous, all of a sudden, I was uh, walking into bars, walking through the lines, all of a sudden, I was dating, able to date girls half my age. And then and those relationships all revolved around drugs and drinking all the time. I was, you know, I was popular, all of these things that I never experienced growing up and it occurred to me, you know what? I don't have to be who I am. I don't have to have my own identity. I can be Mark Cuban's brother and get all this name, quote unquote, name fame, fake adulation and just be that. So from that extent, yes. And uh, that's not Mark's fault. That's my fault, right? We, we have our own responsibility to create our own identity, to forge our own path. 
And that seemed like the path of least resistance to me. And at that time, the path of least resistance was very, was all I ever took. And so I, my drug use increased, my drinking increased. I became a real jerk on the Dallas party scene. And uh, I call it, you know, the biggest douchebag on the Dallas party scene. And I was just this kind of just blob working my way through. And so, yes, it did impact me from that standpoint. I, you know, I really appreciate how authentic you are being and about how honest you are being. How do you go from being what you're calling the douchebag on the Dallas party scene to this honorable man? How, what was your first, you talked about what was your awakening, but what was the first thing you actually did different? Uh, stop lying to my therapist. That was the actually, that was the first thing I did that was different and including walking in the rooms of 12 step, which was different because I'd never even tried that before. Uh, but uh, those two things, uh, stop lying to my therapist. Well, why would you lie to I'd been seeing a therapist, a psychiatrist for two years, getting my antidepressants while I'm also drinking and doing blow, that works out. But uh, I'd been lying to him, lying to him, lying to him. Well, why would you lie to your therapist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate, does it? I was ashamed. I was ashamed of my eating disorders. And at that point, I knew I was bulimic. And uh, I didn't really understand body dysmorphic disorder yet, but I knew I was bulimic. And I was ashamed about all of it. And I finally just, you know, took a deep breath, edged myself off to the edge of the plane, right, like skydiving, and, and, the, and trusted that the parachute was going to open and started getting honest. And, and because honesty and, and uh, the releasing of shame are linchpins to recovery, I think, regardless of what the uh, disorder is. Agreed. The releasing Agreed. of shame in a, in, a, in a safe place, right? Doesn't mean you have to stand on a street corner, doesn't mean you have to be an advocate, but I think finding a safe place is generally a constant. To be seen for who you really are, whether that is yeah. by a therapist, and, by a partner, by somebody, yeah, and somebody who knows you. I still see that therapist today. I still see that therapist today. How many years? years later. Over Good. 15, so 17 years, 17 years. You're lucky. So, um, I'm a big believer. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, privilege. a privilege, right? That's a privilege. Health insurance is a privilege. Health yeah. insurance that has good mental health coverage is even a bigger privilege. Right. So, uh, no, I, I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge that because so many people don't have it. Don't have it. So when you're yes. approached now, you're doing a lot of destigmatizing speaking. You're talking to organizations. You must get approached by audience members who, you know, sort of lean in a little close and sort of whisper, I'm struggling with sure. addiction or body dysmorphic disorder or bipolar disorder, whatever they're struggling with. What's your first piece of advice for them? Well, my first question is, how can I help? You know, tell me what I can do. And then my second is, uh, question is, would you like to discuss this in a safe place? And then my third is, okay, based on my experience, strength and hope, what I know, I'm only an expert, I'm not an expert in anything but my journey, right? I have a JD, not an MA or a PhD. So I do my best to uh, meet them where they are in their journey and using my journey to help them find a road to, uh, to recovery. And I let, make sure they understand that 
they've already satisfied the pre first prerequisite and really the only prerequisite to recovery, which is they are above ground. So let's, you know, I, I tell them I will take that journey with them as the best I can and guide them to people who are uh, who are experts and uh, in a safe manner where if they're not ready to, uh, you know, they, they don't want to be known. And that's fine. Uh, not everyone's an advocate. Right. There is mm-hmm. stigma and we shouldn't delegitimize people's fear and we shouldn't delegitimize people's shame. What I don't do is tell people there's no reason to be ashamed. Uh, because that delegitimizes a natural body instinct, right? Right. I tell right. them that's normal. So how can we deal with that? What what we do what we do is we deal with shame, right? How can we channel that? How can we build a toolbox? But I never say there's no reason to be ashamed. You'd be because lying. That can cause people to well, cause, can cause someone to feel shame. That could cause somebody to feel shame, and we do live in a culture that imposes shame on people. For and we do, and it's a body. Reasons. You're right, and we, and it's a bo- It's the bodies. It's almost an. I, I view it as an almost. Uh, I don't really think it's a social concept. I think we've kind of evolved a social construct. I think we've kind of evolved where it becomes a bodily reaction to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, from uh, from to, even though it's not a healthy one in terms of if we uh, respond to it in, in destructive ways. So we build the toolbox to respond to shame constructively and help in a healthy manner. Right, right. How can I help you build the toolbox? How can I help? What's a tool for you? What works for you? Yeah, yeah. Meeting them. Yeah, and, where and I'm not are. an expert, so yeah. Yeah, I'm not in for not everyone. For instance, with regard to substance use disorder, I went through twelve step. I acknowledge that that's mm-hmm. not the path for everyone. Some people right. don't want to do that. People dealing with opioid addiction. Uh, we have medication-assisted therapy. Maybe they need to be on Suboxone or Methadone. I'm not an expert in that. And they may redefine recovery. What, what's interesting about the, that is that the SAMHSA definition of recovery says nothing about abstinence or sober or 12-step. It talks about us living our best lives. We meet people where they are to figure out how they can meet their best lives, whether that's family relationships, uh, you know, spousal relationships, uh, you know, intimate, other intimate relationships, work, children. There, there are many different prongs to living your best life that constitute recovery. Agreed. I like to think of life as having certain domains, your emotional health, mental health, physical health, relational right. health, spiritual health. Yeah, all of That's those. right. And so I don't, I don't impose my definition for me on anyone. I want to know what you need to you know, live your best life and hit all the prongs. And right. th- because I'm not an expert, I will help you find people who can guide you in those directions. That's great. So let's go back to your book, The Ambulance Chaser. I know it's not coming out until December, but we can pre-purchase it before then. On Amazon. We can, and look, see, here, you can. I have my author's copy. There it oh, is. Oh, there it is. The ambulance chaser. There it is. There's Jason, the can protagonist. Just a little bit of teaser about the book. Sure. What's it it is a, the, the ambulance chaser is about a, a lawyer, a Pittsburgh lawyer, who, a personal injury lawyer, who finds himself accused of the murder of a one time high school classmate 30 years prior after her remains are discovery. He's arrested, charged with her murder. He flees becomes a fugitive of, from justice to find the one person 
who can both prove his innocence and save the life of his kidnapped son. Wow. How much of you is in the protagonist's character? Uh, there are elements. There, are, I think with any fiction, there are elements of people you've met along the way. Uh, there's a big uh, Jason, as you might uh, the protagonist Jason has his struggles with drug and alcohol, which isn't anything new in terms of books about, you know, fiction with lawyers, right? That's a trope. We all struggle with drugs and alcohol. He also struggles with his uh, Jewish faith, which is a little bit, uh, has a little bit of me in it in terms of growing up. And uh, there, there is a, uh, there's a Holocaust theme in it. Uh, so there are bits and uh, I've lost family in the Holocaust. And so there are bits and pieces of me and other people I've met along the way uh, in the book. Interestingly, the book all started with a dream, a reoccurring dream uh, of me with a high school best friend uh, throwing bodies into a bonfire. I know, dark, right? Dark. Yeah. And the dream fast forwards to me as an adult, wondering why I haven't been arrested for that. That is how it all started. That is the genesis of the ambulance chaser. Wow, I'm really looking forward to reading it. I will order it today. I hope the Thank rest you. of our- Yes, pre-order it. Pre-order it, yes. Yeah, or if you're so, watching this after December, if you're watching this later, just order it. <laughs> just order it, right. I'm going to pre-order it. If you're watching it later, just order it and read it. Just and rate it. And, and read do it. all of those I, things, participate. I think yes. you'll enjoy it, it's fast moving. It's fast moving. Great. So I wanna thank you again for joining us today, Brian. This has been an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you have enjoyed it, please rate it on your platform of choice and we'll look forward to seeing you and talking in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.